on repentance and the atonement of Jesus Christ. And tonight we'll start in Alma chapter 39, verses 2 and 5. Now, in speaking to Alma's son, Corianton, for thou didst give, for thou didst not give so much heed unto my words as did thy brother among the people of the Zoramites. Now this is what I have against thee. Thou didst go on unto boasting in thy strength and in thy wisdom. And this is not all my son. Thou didst do that which was grievous unto me. And thou didst forsake the ministry, and did go over into the land of Siron, among the borders of the Lamanites, after the harlot Isabel. Now, I would submit that what led Alma's son Corianton into sexual sin was the refusal or the walking away from of offering up a broken heart and contrite spirit. And thus becoming, you know, hardened in his heart, he began to boast of his own strength and his own wisdom. And it eventually led him, you know, being hardened in his own pride, um, you know, to um, you know his sin with, you know, the uh, the, the prostitute. Now, in verse 6, For behold, if ye deny the Holy Ghost, when it once has had place in you, and ye know that ye deny it, behold, this is a sin which is unpardonable. Yea, and whosoever murdereth against the light and knowledge of God, it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. Yea, say unto you, my son, that it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. So in verse 6, we have two grievous sins that are outlined. And the second is unpardonable. And it is the sin against the Holy Ghost. And In addition, the, the shedding of innocent blood or of murder. And Alma does not say that this sin is unforgivable. However, he does say that it is difficult to, to obtain forgiveness for the shedding of innocent blood. And, you know, Joseph Smith, you know, as an example, you know, uh, and found in Words of Joseph Smith by Andy E. Hatt, brings up the example of King David. And that to fully be forgiven of the sin of shedding Uriah's blood, that David was going to have to go to hell. And hell simply means that place where we have to suffer for our own sins, uh, having not taken advantage of Christ's atonement or having done something where Christ's atonement is not applicable. Now, the difference between King David um, shedding innocent blood and the Lamanites in the Book of Mormon who shed innocent blood for which 
they were eventually forgiven. And, you know, among others, there were the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, is that King David did so after being illuminated by the Spirit and probably after having received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, where the Lamanites did so um, without the greater light and knowledge. And so that which was required of the Lamanites to be forgiven of their shedding of innocent blood was that they, among other things, laid down their weapons of war and covenant no more to shed innocent blood and rather die before they would do so. As opposed to King David and what was required of him was that he exercise as much sorrow and remorse and turning from his evil way as possible. And then he would have to pay that price, but that his soul after that price had been paid in hell would not be cast off forever, but that he would again be able to start the path of ascension um, However, being knocked down many rungs on that ladder. Um, And this is in sharp contrast to the sin against the Holy Ghost, for which there is no forgiveness in this life or in the next. And, you know, we are given some clues about what... um, the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost is. And at a bare minimum, it requires the baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost. And after the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, to have the heavens opened, um, i.e. by revelation, and to have a sure witness of God, which... You know, as I have studied it out and thought about it, you know, I think is something that is short of the second comforter, you know, but um, is, you know, an additional witness that usually comes after the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, but which is available to men and women uh, because of the baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost. And one does not have access to that level of a witness of Jesus Christ until after one has received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. You don't think so? You don't think so? Wait, can you hear me? Hello? All right. Now verse six. For behold, if ye deny the Holy Ghost, when it once has had place in you, and ye know that ye deny it, behold, this is a sin which is unpardonable. Yea, and whosoever murdereth against the light and knowledge of God, it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. Yea, say unto you, my son, that it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. And in verse 7, And now, my son, I would to God that ye had not been guilty of so great a crime. I would not dwell upon your crimes to harrow up your soul if it were not for your good. 
So Alma is about to go into the process of repentance. And what is required of his son to repent that he might be able to resume his ministry? And, you know, often I hear the sentiment that, you know, we are not to feel guilt for our sins, um, that we're not even to think about them much, but that Christ has simply paid the price so we don't have to worry about them. But that is not the doctrine that is being taught here by Alma to his son. In fact, in verse 7, he says that he purposely focuses on his son's sin, that his soul might be harrowed up unto repentance. And, you know, I would submit that there is a difference between guilt and shame. You know, guilt is that godly sorrow for sin, a recognition that we have done wrong, a recognition that that um, wrong has made us lose light and is cutting us off from the Spirit of God, from the light of Christ, from the Holy Ghost. And a sincere desire to turn away from our sin and receive again the light of Christ back into our life, the direction of the Spirit and that closeness with God. Verse 8, But behold, ye cannot hide your crimes from God, and except ye repent, they will stand as a testimony against you at the last day. And, you know, again, I would, you know, submit that it was Nahor that taught the doctrine that in reality there is no sin. And I have heard it taught, you know, among many of the Latter-day Saints that um, if you are on the path of ascension and if you have a certain degree of ascension as we you know, come to this earth, there really is no sin, um, but this is a doctrine of Nahor. It is a false doctrine, and it is a doctrine of devils. There certainly is sin. You know, we can do wrong, and we do do wrong. And for that wrong, you know, we must feel remorse and a godly sorrow. And that remorse and godly sorrow should bring us unto repentance, um, which involves both a turning away from the sin, um, you know, and a confessing of our sin before God and before the people that we have damaged and seeking forgiveness, you know, of our wrong. Verse 8 but behold, ye cannot hide your crimes from God. And except ye repent, they will stand as a testimony against you at the last day. And now, my son, I would that you should repent and forsake your sins and go no more after the lusts of your eyes. But cross yourself in all these things, for except ye do this, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, remember and take it upon you and cross yourself in these things. And what is this, this phrase? Cross yourself in these things and cross yourself in all things. 
Let's cross-reference 3 Nephi chapter 12. And in 3 Nephi chapter 12, verse 30, Christ explains what it means to cross yourself in this application of the term. For it is better that you should deny yourselves of these things wherein you shall take up your cross than that you should be cast into hell. Or in other words, that we should exercise self-restraint that even though the natural man in us may have and does have an appetite for that which is fleshy, um, yet we know what is right. And because we know what is right, um, we should do what is right. And we should do what is right regardless of the way we feel or the temptations that should be uh, presented before us. So back in Alma chapter 39. And again, no more go after the lusts of your eyes, but cross yourselves in all these things. For except ye do this, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, remember and take it upon you and cross yourselves in these things. And in verse 12, and now the spirit of the Lord doth say unto me, command thy children to do good, lest they lead away the hearts of many people to destruction. Therefore, I command you, my son, in the fear of God, that ye refrain from your iniquities. So the sins of Corianton did not just affect him. His boasting in his own strength and his own wisdom, you know, his committing, um, Sexual sin with, you know, a, a harlot. It not only um, caused light to leave him and affected his ability to receive revelation and light and his relationship with God, but it also served as an example to the Zoramites. And the example that it served was that they disbelieved not only his words, but the words of his brothers and, you know, his father, you know, as they went forth to declare the doctrine of Christ and reclaim them from their lost and fallen state and try to save them from the destruction that comes from um, a willful ignorance of light and of Christ. Verse 13 that ye turn to the Lord with all your mind, might, and strength. And again, this is part of the repentance process. Turning to the Lord with all of our mind, might, and strength. That ye lead away your, the hearts of no more to do wickedly, but rather return unto them and acknowledge your faults and that wrong which ye have done. So part of this repentance process is the confessing of the sin. And, you know, Alma says that he needs not only to confess this sin, but of your faults. And I would submit that the faults that he is talking about was Corianton's boasting of his own strength and his own wisdom, which again is the opposite of a broken heart and contrite spirit. Exactly the opposite 
of the doctrine of Christ. And, you know, because what he did harmed not only himself, but although the Zoramites weren't directly involved in his sin, however, they did suffer the repercussions of his sin because it gave them justification to reject the preaching of the doctrine of Christ. Verse 14. Seek not after riches, riches, nor the vain things of this world, which would suggest that Corianton probably had his heart set upon riches and the vain things of this world. Again, when one comes unto a broken heart and contrite spirit, which is the oath that we make in the new and everlasting covenant, that the oath of God in return might be might be fulfilled that we receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. You know, it's likely that these are the very things which were preventing Corianton from receiving the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, because he had not yet come unto a broken heart and contrite spirit. He had not yet laid everything upon the altar. Um, and he retained idols of his heart you know, specifically riches of the world and the vain things and his own pride. And these had to be sacrificed. Now also notice that Alma isn't casting off his son forever. And he's not trying to shame him. He's, he's not trying to, you know, cast him out from, you know, being his son or from his love or he's not even telling his son that because of what he has done, he cannot return to the ministry. Um, quite the opposite. Through the process of repentance, Corianton has the opportunity to, in short order, repent of his sins, be forgiven, again receive the light, you know, offer up his broken heart and contrite spirit and quickly return to the ministry in which he has been engaged. And, you know, this is the opposite of shame. You know, this is appropriate guilt. Verse 15. And now my son, I would say somewhat unto you concerning the coming of Christ. Because repentance is only possible through Jesus Christ. And for Corianton, you know, Christ had not yet come. But it was important that Alma teach his son that the coming of Christ and the atonement that he would make is what made the repentance uh, possible is what made the offering up of a broken heart and contrite spirit possible, is what makes possible the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, the very heart of what they have been teaching the people. Behold, I say unto you that it is he that surely shall come to take away the sins of the world. Yea, he cometh to declare glad tidings of salvation unto his people. And so Alma is mentioning here um, two major facets of 
Christ being born into mortality. And, you know, through the shedding of his blood, through the working out of an atonement, Christ is able to overcome sin for those who will take advantage of his atonement, that they might not have to suffer as Christ suffered. And Alma is trying to spare his son from having to suffer and endure and go to hell and suffer as Christ suffered for his sins, because Christ was going to pay the price for what Corey Anton had done. And because Christ would pay the price, um, it was as if the price had already been paid. And second, to declare glad tidings of salvation to the people, or in other words, to give the example of what the people needed to do and teach the doctrine of Christ, which is the path of ascension. And Nephi, you know, lays out these declarations of glad tidings in second Nephi 31, where he prophesies that Christ would be baptized by water, by one having the proper power and authority, that then he would receive the baptism of fire, baptism of Holy Ghost, and that we were to do likewise. And that once we had received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, as Christ had received, then we could speak with the tongue of angels. And throughout the Book of Mormon, um, the main purpose of speaking with the tongue of angels is to go out and to declare the doctrine of Christ, that others may also receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, that they also might be adopted as Christ's sons and daughters, as those who have received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, have done. Now, let's cross-reference. Alma, chapter 43. Twenty-nine through thirty-one, and now, as Moroni knew the intention of the Lamanites, that it was their intention to destroy their brethren, or subject them to bring them into bondage. And. That is the wrong chapter. Let's let's go to Alma 7, verses 11 through 16. And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people. And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon them their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy. According to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Now the Spirit knoweth all things. Nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people 
that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. Now I say unto you that ye must repent and be born again. For the Spirit saith, if ye are not born again, ye cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now this being born again is the reception of the baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost. And it is the most crucial and central doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet it remains practically unknown to the Latter-day Saints, even though it is the greatest gift that God can bestow upon us in this mortal life. And it is impossible to return to God and ultimately to become like him without receiving the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, come and be baptized unto repentance, that ye may be washed from your sins, and that ye may have faith on the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world, who is mighty to save and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Yea, I say unto you, come and fear not, and lay aside every sin which easily doth beset you, which doth bind you down to destruction. Yea, come and go forth, and show unto your God that ye are willing to repent of your sins. And a great, again, a great discourse on both the atonement or at one month with Christ and how the price would be and was paid and how we repent. Laying aside, you know, every sin and showing unto God that we are willing to repent and enter into a covenant with him to keep his commandments. Now, this entering into a covenant with him to keep his commandments is part of the covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit that we might receive the baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost. And witness unto him this day by going into the waters of baptism, and whosoever doeth this and keepeth the commandments of God, from thenceforth, the same will remember that I say unto him. Yea, he will remember that I have said unto him, he shall have eternal life according to the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which testifieth in me. Now let's go to third, or Mosiah 3, verses 7 through 8. And lo, he shall suffer temptations, and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every pore. So great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and abominations of his people. And again, you know, all of these testimonies of Jesus Christ are prophecy. Christ hadn't even come. And yet this is how clear the revelations of God to prophets were of what Christ would do. And the revelations to Old Testament prophets were just as clear. However, they have been scrubbed from 
our Old Testament, you know, except where the references, um, you know, could not be understood, you know, um, as in Isaiah. And verse 8, and he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, and often, you know, the question, you know, is posed. Well, what exactly should we call? And by what name should we call Jesus Christ? And throughout the Book of Mormon, um, you know, that very name and title is applied to him, Jesus Christ. And that you know, is, as Book of Mormon prophets declare, the only name under heaven that can save us. And it is certainly an appropriate name and title for us to use um, for him. And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the creator of all things from the beginning. And his mother shall be called Mary. Now, in Mosiah 4, as King Benjamin's people are coming unto a broken heart and contrite spirit and beginning to receive that baptism of fire, which accompanies the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We read in verses 2 and 3, And they had viewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. And may I submit this is the opposite of Corianton boasting of his own strength and his own wisdom. And they all cried aloud with one voice saying, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ that we may receive forgiveness of our sins, that our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the son of God who created heaven and earth and all things who shall come down among the children of men. And it came to pass that after they had spoken these words, the spirit of the Lord came upon them and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins and having peace of conscience because of the exceeding faith, which they had in Jesus Christ, who should come according to the words, which King Benjamin had spoken unto them. And just as King Benjamin desired that his people would receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost by offering up a broken heart and contrite spirit, repenting of their sins. So this is what Alma desired for his son, Corianton. And this is what he desired for the people to whom they had gone forth to minister would receive in like manner. Now, in Mormon, chapter 9, verse 6. O then, ye unbelieving, turn ye unto the Lord, cry mightily unto the Father in the name of Jesus, that perhaps ye may be found spotless, pure, fair, and white, having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb at the great and last day. So Moroni, again, is instructing us about how to offer up a broken heart and contrite spirit that we might receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. And just as Alma instructed his son Corianton to turn from his sins 
and to turn to Christ and unto righteousness. So does Moroni instruct us to turn unto the Lord. Implicit in that is to turn from our sins and cry mightily unto the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And I would submit that those examples in Scripture that we have of the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, almost universally involve crying out unto God. Um, examples that readily come to mind. Lehi in First Nephi chapter 1 where after hearing a true prophet speak by the power and authority of the Holy Ghost, i.e. Jeremiah in the streets of Jerusalem, he goes and he cries out mightily unto God at his altar. And he cries not only on his own behalf, but also for his people. And as a result, a pillar of fire comes down before him and he receives the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. The 300 in Helaman 5 who are with Nephi and Lehi at the site of the prison, who are surrounded in a mist of darkness. They are delivered when they cry out unto God. And as they're crying out unto God and coming to a broken heart and contrite spirit, pillars of fire come down, surround each one of them. Angels come down, minister to them, and they receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. Christ's 12 disciples in 3 Nephi chapter 19 they have been ministering to the people, teaching them the very words which Christ had taught to them. And they take a break from their ministry and they kneel down and they cry unto God for the thing that they desire more than anything else in the world. And the thing that they desire more than anything else in the world is that they might receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. And as a result, they receive the baptism by water by the hand of Nephi into the terrestrial order of the gospel. And then they receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. Pillars of fire come down upon them. Angels come down and minister to them. And even Jesus Christ comes and ministers to them. Um, as we've mentioned, King Benjamin's people cry out unto God in the depths of humility having come unto a broken heart and contrite spirit in Mosiah chapters four and five, they also receive the baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so I would submit that we should also do likewise. And again, in Mormon chapter nine, verse six, Oh, then ye unbelieving, turn ye unto the Lord, cry mightily unto the Father in the name of Jesus, that perhaps ye may be found spotless, pure, fair, and white, having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Now this cleansing through crying out, through coming to a broken heart and contrite spirit, is the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now in Helaman, chapter 5, verse 9. Oh, remember, remember, my sons, the words which King Benjamin spake unto his people. Ye remember that there is no other way nor means whereby man can be saved, only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, who shall come. Ye remember 
that he cometh to redeem the world. And verse 10, And remember also the words which Amulek spake unto Zizram in the city of Ammonihah, for he said unto him that the Lord surely should come to redeem his people, but that he should not come to redeem them in their sins, but to redeem them from their sins. Again, counteracting the doctrine of Nahor, in which there is no sin. But because there is sin, Christ came and he paid the price. But to take advantage of that payment requires us to come to him, to cry out unto him, and to truly repent. And then we might not suffer as he had to suffer. In verse 11, And he hath power given unto him from the Father to redeem them from their sins because of repentance. Therefore he hath sent his angels to declare the tidings of the conditions of repentance, which bringeth unto the power of the Redeemer unto the salvation of their souls. And now, my sons, remember, that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts and the whirlwind, yea, and when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe. And, you know, this is suffering the pains of hell. Because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. Now, let's go to Alma 21, verse 9. Now Aaron began to open the scriptures unto them concerning the coming of Christ and also concerning the resurrection of the dead. And that there could be no redemption for mankind, save it were through the death and sufferings of Christ and the atonement of his blood. And it came to pass that he began to expound these things unto them, and they were angry with him and began to mock him, and they would not hear the words which he spake. Now, as we're told in Second Nephi uh, chapter 28, verse 28, that those who are built upon the rock, who is Christ and revelation, receiveth the truth with gladness, while those who are built upon anything else, a sandy foundation, uh, are angry because of the truth. Now, Alma 39. Verses 15 and 16. And now, my son, I would say somewhat unto you concerning the coming of Christ. Behold, I say unto you that it is he that surely shall come to take away the sins of the world. Yea, he cometh to declare glad tidings of salvation unto his people. And now, my son, this was the ministry unto which ye were called, to declare these glad tidings unto this people, to prepare their minds 
or rather that salvation might come unto them, that they may prepare the minds of their children to hear the word at the time of his coming. And now, so, you know, again, the doctrine of Christ is taught that we might put our own house in order, that we might repent of our sins, that we might cry out unto him, that we might offer up a broken heart and contrite spirit, that we might receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and also that we might teach these things to those with whom we have influence, that they also might receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, that they might receive a forgiveness of their sins, that they might, at the last day, stand uh, clean before him and might be able to enter into his rest, which rest is the fullness of his glory. And in Alma 42, verse 29, And now, my son, I desire that ye should let these things trouble you no more, and only let your sins trouble you. And again, righteous you know, grief, or guilt for that which we have done is appropriate, that it might bring us to Christ, that we might repent, that we might have his blood poured out upon our hearts, that we might be forgiven and stand clean before him. Let's, and now, my son, I desire that you should let these things trouble you no more. And only let your sins trouble you with that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. O my son, I desire that you should deny the justice of God no more. Because Corianton was, because he wasn't offering up a broken heart and contrite spirit, because he was boasting in his own strength, in his own wisdom, because he had entered uh, into a serious sexual uh, sin. He had been estranged from the Spirit, and he was not receiving the appropriate level of guilt, but instead was trying to excuse himself of what he had done, and he needed to do exactly the opposite. I desire that you should deny the justice of God no more. And the justice of God in this instance is that he requires us to repent, to be forgiven, and that there is a penalty for sin, and that the doctrine of Nahor is false. Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins by denying the justice of God, but do let the justice of God and his mercy and his long suffering have full sway in your heart and let it bring you down to the dust in humility. Again, Alma is teaching his son about how to come to a broken heart and contrite spirit, how to repent after transgression. And now, O oh my son, ye are called of God to preach the word unto this people. And again, 
Alma isn't saying because of your sin, you are cast off forever, or even that you are being, you know, you know, banned from the mission to which you have been called. Alma is saying, put your house in order, feel genuine godly remorse, seek repentance, turn from worldliness and from your own pride to God. Receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, that ye might go forth and be able to teach and to convert this people. O my son, ye are called of God to preach the word unto this people. And now, my son, go thy way, declare the word with truth and soberness, that thou mayest bring souls unto repentance, and the great plan of mercy may have claim upon them, and may God grant unto you even according to my words, amen. And we need to remember that Alma, and this is Alma the Younger, was in the very act of going about to destroy the church of God when he was visited by an angel. And he had the choice, either he could harden his heart and be cast off forever, or he could soften his heart, feel godly remorse, repent of his sins, which he says, which remorse and repentance brought him unto the edge of death. But he received a forgiveness of his sins, and as a result of his coming to a broken heart and contrite spirit, he received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. And when that happened, he and the sons of Mosiah were filled with a desire to go out and to declare the doctrine of Christ, that the, first the Nephites and then the Lamanites might also be reclaimed from their wickedness and might be born again of God. Now, Alma chapter 40. And 41 and 42, Alma gives a great discourse on Christ's resurrection and restoration, the fall, mortal probation, repentance, atonement, justice, and mercy. So, Alma chapter 40, verse 1. Now, my son, here is somewhat more I would say unto thee, for I perceive that thy mind is worried concerning the resurrection of the dead. Behold, I see unto you that there is no resurrection or I would say, in other words, that this mortal does put on immortality. This corruption does not put on incorruption until after the coming of Christ. So there is no resurrection until uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when one understands the doctrine of eternal lives, as outlined in Alma chapter 13, verse 3, we understand that, you know, for this earth, that that process really starts um, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Behold, he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. But behold, my son, the resurrection is not yet. Now I unfold unto you a mystery. Nevertheless, there are many mysteries which are kept, that no one knoweth them, save God himself. But I show unto you one thing, 
which I have inquired diligently of God that I might know that is concerning the resurrection. Behold, there is a time appointed that all shall come forth from the dead. Now when this time cometh, no one knows, but God knoweth the time which is appointed. Now, it's important that we understand what the term resurrection means. And Alma has made reference here to many mysteries. And oftentimes, you know, it's asserted that if something isn't stated forth plainly in the canon of scripture that we have, then it's not true. And, you know, that is simply untrue because truth is independent in the sphere in which it has been placed. And that doctrine, which is celestial, is contained in the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, which will come forth um, to members of the Church of the Firstborn and is being translated by Joseph Smith. And the doctrine which is not concealed um, is that of the telestial and terrestrial nature which we have in the Book of Mormon. And so we have many allusions and references to celestial doctrine in the Book of Mormon, but those celestial doctrines are not explicitly stated because they are to be had by those who have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand. And so if we turn back to Alma 13, to a sermon that Alma had taught to the people in the city of Ammonihah. And here he teaches celestial doctrine, but still you have to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand what is being taught. In Alma 12, verse 9, he says, And it is given unto many to know the mysteries of God. And I would submit that the mysteries of God, you know, are that or are those things which are celestial doctrine and celestial covenants and celestial ordinances that are to be revealed to those who are prepared for them. Nevertheless, they are laid under strict command that they shall not impart only according to the portion of the word which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which they give unto him. And therefore, he that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word. And he that will not harden his heart, to him is given the greater portion of the word, until it is given unto him to know the mysteries of God, until he know them in full. And they that will harden their hearts, to them is given the lesser portion of the word, until they know nothing concerning the mysteries, and then they are taken captive by the devil and led by his will down to destruction. Now this is what is meant by the chains of hell. Now, in Alma chapter 13, verse 3, Alma is going to go into one of the mysteries of godliness or the mysteries of God that we might understand it uh, in a greater fullness, that we might better understand what this term resurrection means. And so in Alma 13, verse 3, and this is the manner after which they were ordained. 
Now, the ordination that Alma is speaking of is the ordination of high priest. And this ordination of high priest is not the high priest that we have in the LDS church today, but it is the ordination of high priest that did uh, occur on June 4th, 1831 at the Isaac Morley farm. And to which Joseph Smith received this ordination to high priest. And it resides within the second order of Melchizedek priesthood or the patriarchal order of the Melchizedek priesthood. And in the context that Alma is using the term here, um, you know, we know that there are two parts to every priesthood. The first is the ordination where one receives authority. The second part is the sealing after the test where one receives power. And Alma is talking about those who have been ordained and sealed to this order of the priesthood. Being called and prepared from the foundation of the world. Okay. So Alma has just set forth the time and the place of what is to follow. Before the foundation of the world is what we would call in LDS terms, the pre-earth life. Or before this current mortality. According to the foreknowledge of God. And in this instance, Alma is about to set forth what the foreknowledge of God is in this instance. And it's not how we normally define it or understand it. On account of their exceeding faith and good works. Now, when are these exceeding faith and good works demonstrated? Well, it's before the foundation of the world or before the mortality that they find themselves in. In the first place, being left to choose good or evil. Now, are we left to choose between good and evil when we're in the presence of God? And I would submit to you that we are not and cannot be left to choose between good and evil when we are in the presence of God. Although we may uh, choose between good and evil, we are not left. That the, that the condition of being left to choose between good and evil only occurs within a mortality in which we have had the veil drawn across our minds. But, you know, when is the setting of being left to choose between good and evil, having the veil drawn across our minds in a physical body. Well, it's before the foundation of the world or before their current mortality. And again, putting this in context, this is talking about those who are to be ordained and sealed to the patriarchal order of Melchizedek priesthood, to be a high priest of the most high God in the church of the firstborn. Or, you know, when a man is ordained as a high priest in this order and receives the patriarchal order of Melchizedek priesthood, he becomes a part of the holy order as is referenced in verse 1. In verse 1, and again, my brethren, I would cite your minds forward to the time when the Lord God gave these commandments unto his children. And I would say that you should remember that the Lord God ordained priests after his holy order. Now, this holy order is in the church of the firstborn. It is the patriarchal order of Melchizedek priesthood, the second order of Melchizedek priesthood. 
In the first place, back in verse 3, being left to choose good or evil, therefore they having chosen good and exercised exceedingly great faith. Now this exercising exceedingly great faith means the same thing as, if we go to DNC 76, verse 53. Now in verse 52 is the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. So after the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, those who overcome by faith and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So, those men who are candidates to be ordained and sealed to the patriarchal order of Melchizedek priesthood before the foundation of the world had a veil of forgetfulness drawn across their mind, entered into immortality, chose that which was good, and exercised exceedingly great faith. This choosing that which is good being a metaphor for offering up a broken heart and contrite spirit and receiving the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, going on from there to exercise exceedingly great faith. This is also what Nephi talks about in 2 Nephi chapter 32. When he poses the question in verse 1, what should I do after I have entered into the gate? And 2 Nephi chapter 31 defines that gate as the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. Then he says at the end of verse 3, feast upon the words of Christ, for behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. This feasting upon the words of Christ is not only to seek after and to receive, but also to act in accordance with the words of Christ. And these words of Christ are the revelation that comes after the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, as we continue to ask and to knock. Then Nephi says they will tell us all things what we should do. To what? Well, 2 Nephi 31 32, uh, in addition to setting forth the doctrine of Christ, is also a commentary on the Tree of Life vision. And the Tree of Life vision is a visual set of metaphors that teach the doctrine of Christ that teach a broken heart, contrite spirit, that teach the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, that teach that after the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, as we continue to ask and knock and receive, um, as we feast upon the words of Christ, which means also to do, that this is the iron rod, which leads us to the tree to partake of the fruit, and the tree is Christ. And partaking of the fruit is eternal life. And again, verse 5 in 2 Nephi 32, For behold, again I say unto you, that if you will enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show unto you all things that ye should do. And behold, this is the doctrine of Christ, and there will be no more doctrine given until after he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh. So the tree is, and reaching the tree and partaking of the fruit is, the same as what is detailed at the first part of Moses chapter 1. As Moses did to ascend to the high mountain, which is not an earthly mountain, but the heavenly mountain, to come into Christ's presence in his glory, and there have him seal upon us our calling and election and make it sure. 
and that this is exactly what is being alluded to in Alma chapter 13, verse 3. But it is alluded to instead of being stated explicitly because um, the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the terrestrial order of the gospel. And that celestial portion, which would talk about these things explicitly, uh, is contained in the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, which will yet come forth. Therefore, they having chosen good and exercised exceedingly great faith. Now, it's also uh, important that we understand what faith is, because normally we define faith as hope. And hope is belief and trust. And we must combine hope with faith. So we must combine the belief and trust, which is hope, with seeking after, receiving, and acting on revelation. And as is outlined in DNC 76, that this overcoming by faith, as is put forth in 2 Nephi 32, this feasting upon the words of Christ, they're the exact same thing. That this is a exercising exceedingly great faith or seeking after receiving and acting on that revelation, which comes after the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, which instructs us sufficiently about how to part the veil and enter into Christ's presence in the fullness of his glory. And therefore, once they do this and they continue, they are called with the holy calling. Well, this being called with the holy calling, once one accomplishes these things, the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and um, being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, who is Christ, ascending to the seventh heaven or high mountain, and having our calling election made sure, then, at a later point, one becomes uh, qualified to then go on and be ordained as a high priest in the holy order of God, as a member of the Church of the Firstborn, to receive the patriarchal order of the priesthood and have it sealed upon them. But the prerequisite is having received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and the second comforter before the foundation of the world. Yea, they are called with a holy calling with that holy calling, which was prepared with and according to a preparatory redemption for such. Or in other words, one does not become a co-inheritor with Christ of all that Father has without becoming precisely as he is. And this does not happen in one mortality. The doctrine of eternal lives is taught by Joseph Smith to those in the holy order. And... Um, there is an entire book called uh, The Teachings of the Doctrine of Eternal Lives with collections of statements by early church leaders upon this topic of eternal lives is that we don't become as Christ is in one lifetime, that it actually takes many. And so this process of, res of what we call resurrection, for the most part, simply means to be born again of woman. And as we've been reading in Alma, this being born again of woman, as far as, you know, this earth goes, um, did not happen 
until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was the first fruits of resurrection. And as we learn here in Alma 13, verse 3, that to be a candidate, to be a high priest in the holy order of God, which is the ascension level required to become part of the 144,000 that we read about in DNC 77. In a prior mortality, one must have received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise who is Christ, or in other words, had their calling and election made sure. Then they were called with this holy calling. But we know that many are called, but few are chosen. So in a subsequent mortality, when the heavens were opened, they would again have to receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. They would again have to receive the second comforter. And then being called with this holy calling because they had fulfilled the divine prerequisites. If they would remain true and faithful, would be ordained to the patriarchal order because it priesthood, become members of the holy order, and ascend to this level. Now, the resurrection that Alma is talking about in Alma chapter 40 is this resurrection of being born again of woman. And Resurrection also includes being changed to a translated terrestrial or celestial body. And it also includes after passing the test as a savior or wife of a savior, receiving that resurrection where one receives a glorified body from which they go no more out of. So after passing the test as a savior, or wife of a savior, that resurrection means to be no more born again of woman, but to receive um, resurrected celestial glory, um, which one may still set aside and condescend and then take back up. For example, when Christ came and visited his apostles and Mary, after his resurrection, he could not come with the fullness of his celestial or terrestrial glory. The earth would have been destroyed. So he had to set it aside and come with only a modicum of celestial glory. When Christ came and visited the Nephites in 3 Nephi chapter 11, he could not come with his celestial and terrestrial glory, but a modicum of celestial glory, <clears throat> which glory was still go so great that we read in 3 Nephi chapter 11 that the Nephites still had to receive a baptism of fire, not yet the baptism of fire and Holy Ghost, but a baptism of fire to sufficiently cleanse and sanctify them that they might be able to receive Christ with that degree of glory that he did bring with him. And so turning back to Alma chapter 40, now that we have a better understanding of this term resurrection, we can see the nuances and the true meaning of what Alma is teaching. Starting again in verse 2 with our new understanding of what resurrection is. Behold, I say unto you that there is no resurrection, or I would say in other words, that this mortal does not put on immortality, this corruption does not put on incorruption until after the coming of Christ. Now, 
putting on immortality is the process of eternal lives, and it is the eventual goal of the doctrine of Christ that we receive a glorified celestial body exactly as Christ and Mary received. Behold, he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. But behold, my son, the resurrection is not yet. So from the time of the flood until the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this process of coming back by being born again of woman, um, it did not occur. There was, there was one lifetime um, from the flood up until Christ's resurrection. Now I unfold unto you a mystery. Nevertheless, there are many mysteries which are kept that no one knoweth them save God himself. But I show unto you one thing which I have inquired diligently of God that I might know that is concerning resurrection. Behold, there is a time appointed that all shall come forth from the dead. Now when this time cometh, no one knows, but God knoweth the time which is appointed. Now, this time appointed has everything to do with to what degree we take advantage of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And either we make his sacrifice efficacious in the remission of our sins, or we require that we go to hell and that we pay the price. And if we require because we refuse to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, if we refuse to repent, then we require that we suffer for our sins in hell until they are paid for, until the account is set back to zero. And then we can again begin the process of uh, returning, that next time we might do better. However, if we take advantage of the atonement of Jesus Christ um, and we allow him to set the account to zero and we enter into the new and everlasting covenant, we receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and continue on to feast upon the words of Christ, not only do we allow him to pay the price for our sin, not only do we allow him to allow us to come back in a more rapid fashion, but as he extends his hand to us, as his sons and daughters, after receiving the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, we allow him to lift us up to where he is as we continue to feast upon the words of Christ. Now, this is, this is outlined in 3 Nephi chapter 19. And if we go to 3 Nephi chapter 19, we have the account of Christ um, giving thanks to Father for baptizing with fire and with the Holy Ghost, the twelve whom he has chosen. Verse 19. And it came to pass that Jesus departed out of the midst of them and went a little way off from them and bowed himself to the earth and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast given the Holy Ghost unto these whom I have chosen. And it is 
and because of their belief in me that I have chosen them out of the world. Now, it's important to understand that before we can receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, Christ must plead our case before Father and receive permission from Father to adopt us as his sons and his daughters. And only after that permission is granted from Father is the ordinance of baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, able to be performed and be efficacious. Or in other words, to actually have something happen, to actually receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, rather than just have those words uttered. Father, I pray thee that thou will give the Holy Ghost unto all them that shall believe in their words. So we're getting an example of Christ pleading the case of the Nephites before Father and receiving permission likewise to adopt as sons and daughters those Nephites who will believe in him, who will enter into the new covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit because of the doctrine of Christ that will be taught to them by Christ's 12 disciples. Father, verse 22, thou hast given them the Holy Ghost because they believe in me, and thou seest that they believe in me because thou hearest them. And they pray unto me, and they pray unto me because I am with them. Now here Christ sets forth the doctrine about when it's appropriate to pray directly to him. And although there are many that assert that it's appropriate to pray to him after the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, because we're adopted as his sons and daughters, yet you know Christ sets the record straight in saying that, Father, even though they have received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, the reason that they're praying to me is because I am with them. And that is when it is appropriate to pray directly to Christ. And verse 23, And now, Father, I pray unto thee for them, and also for all those who shall believe on their words, that they may believe in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one. All right, Christ is talking about at one month, or that portion of the atonement, which not only covered the price of sin and death, so forgiveness, so that we do not have to suffer as Christ suffered, and that we would be able to be born again, that we might have other chances to become as he and father is, but after the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, the power that he gained to extend his hand to us and lift us up to where he is. And this, what is meant that when he says at the end of verse 23, that I may be in them as thou father art in me, that we may be one. And he continues this theme in verse 27. When he says, and he turned from them again and went a little way off and bowed himself to the earth and prayed again unto the father saying, father, I thank thee that thou hast purified those whom I have chosen because of their faith. Or in other words, that thou has given them the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, whereby they have become my sons and my daughters. And I pray for them and also for them who shall believe on their words, that they may be purified in me through faith on their words. This purification through Christ is the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, even as they are purified in me. And verse 29, we have the second part of this process of at one month, or after the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, 
holding securely on to Christ's hand and allowing him to lift us up to where he is, that we might become one with him and one with Father. Verse 29, Father, I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me out of the world. Well, who are those whom the Father has given Christ out of the world? Those who have received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and thereby have become his sons and daughters. Because of their faith, because of their seeking after receiving and acting on revelation, that they may be purified in me. Now, this is what is being talked about in DNC 84 with Moses and the children of Israel. So in DNC 84, When it says, now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. Well, this is exactly what Christ is talking about. And in the next verse in DNC 84, verse 24, we learn that beholding the face of God in this circumstance means entering into his rest, which rest is the fullness of his glory. And this is what Christ has reference to in 3 Nephi 19. And this is the next step in at one month with Christ and at one month with the Father. That they may be purified in me. This purification is that sanctification that is being talked about in DNC 84, that Moses sought for his people by teaching them the new covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit, that they also might receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, that they might enter into the rest of the Lord, which rest is the fullness of his glory. And so, back in 3 Nephi 19, verse 29, that they may be purified in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one, that I may be glorified in them. And ultimately, this has reference to those who at the end of the millennium will ascend to the highest level of translated celestial inside New Jerusalem and will be prepared after the battle of Gog and Magog to make that ascent from top-level translated terrestrial to translated celestial. And then this earth receives celestial glory, and that glory is given to Christ, and Christ gives it to his Father, who gives it to his Father, who gives it to his Father. And as Joseph Smith outlined in the King Follett Discourse, all of the gods then take a step up on that grand eternal staircase of the gods, and the son becomes a father, and a father then ascends to the level of his father and forever. And this is the power that Christ gained through the atonement through the new covenant of a broken heart and contract spirit to sanctify us through the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, that he might bring us into his presence in his glory while in mortality, that we might continue that path of ascension, that one day we also might be able to take a position on that grand eternal staircase of the gods and become exactly as they are. Going back to Alma, chapter 40, verse 3, again. 
Behold, he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. But behold, my son, the resurrection is not yet. And now I unfold unto you a mystery. Nevertheless, there are many mysteries. Several of them we have just discussed, which are kept that no one knows them save God himself. But I show unto you one thing which I have inquired diligently of God that I might know that is concerning the resurrection. Behold, there is a time appointed that all shall come forth from the dead. Now, when this time cometh, no one knows, but God knoweth the time which is appointed. And that's because there is a different appointment for every person based on what they have done with their lives. And are they on the path of ascension? Verse 5. Now, whether there shall be one time or a second time or a third time that men shall come forth from the dead, it mattereth not. So, this has reference to two things. This first and second and third time means not only that there will be different um, times in history that men and women will be born again or resurrected, but also the, the concept that he has already laid out in, third, in Alma chapter 13, verse 3, that this process of resurrection is the process of being born again of woman, again, again, and again. For God knoweth all these things, and it sufficeth me to know that this is the case, that there is a time appointed that all shall arise from the dead. Now there must needs be a space betwixt the time of death and the time of resurrection. And now I would inquire what becometh of the souls of men from this time of death to the time appointed for the resurrection, or the time appointed that men and women should again come forth through birth, that they should be born again, which has two meanings, both the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and resurrection, or to be born again of woman. Now, whether there is more than one time appointed for men to arise, it mattereth not. For all do not die at once, and this mattereth not. All is as one day with God, and time only is measured unto men. Therefore, there is a time appointed unto men that they shall rise from the dead, and there is a space between the time of death and the resurrection. And now concerning this space of time, what becometh of the souls of men is the thing which I have inquired diligently of the Lord to know, and this is the thing of which I do know. And when the time cometh, when all shall arise, then shall they know that God knoweth all the times which are appointed unto man. Now concerning the state of the soul between death and resurrection. Behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. And then shall it come to pass that the spirits of those who are righteous are received into a state of happiness. 
which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all their care and sorrow and prepare for their next mortality, designing out whether they will take the easy path, a medium path, or a hard path. And the difficulty of the path that is designed by them is directly correlated to the ascension level they will be able to achieve during that next mortality. And these are they who have taken advantage of the atonement of Jesus Christ and have um, done their best to enter into covenant with God, offer up their broken heart and contrite spirit, receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and then go on from there. While those who do not take advantage of the atonement of Christ must suffer and set the account back to zero. Verse 13, And then shall it come to pass that the spirits of the wicked, yea, who are evil, for behold, they have no part nor portion of the Spirit of the Lord. For behold, they chose evil works rather than good. Therefore, the spirit of the devil did enter into them and take possession of their house, and these shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and this because of their own iniquity being led captive by the will of the devil. Now, this this use of outer darkness is not the same as the use of outer darkness uh, that we use in the LDS Church today. Uh, it's, its common understanding is this is the place of the sons of perdition, um, where the devil and his angels go. Um, however, um, the context in which this outer darkness is used is simply uh, that hell or spirit prison where a disembodied spirit must go that they might pay the price for their sins and set the account record back to zero. Verse 14, now this is the state of the souls of the wicked, yea, in darkness, in a state of awful fearful. Uh, looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them. Thus they remain in this state, as well as the righteous in paradise, until the time of their resurrection. So the account balance must be set back to zero. Either Christ will set the account balance to zero through our repentance and taking advantage of the price that he has already paid, or we must pay the price ourselves. Now, it should also be noted that this spirit prison, this place of payment and suffering, if we will not um, allow Christ to pay the price for us, it's on this earth. And, you know, these spirits who are in hell or spirit prison uh, are wandering this earth and oftentimes seek to have interaction with us and to have experiences through us. And so we, we must be on guard that um, 
we do not allow a disembodied spirit to take power over us. Now, an example of this happening um, would be those who are feeling uh, feelings of same-sex attraction. What has happened is that there is a spirit who is in spirit prison of the opposite sex who has come and is co-inhabiting their body. Um, and these, these unclean spirits, um, they may have influence on us either because they're in close proximity to us um, or because they have you know, sought to bind themselves to us. But the next level would be that there has been an opportunity that our protective light has been damaged and that they are actually able to come inside and to co-inhabit and um, impress upon us their own thoughts and feelings and desires. And it has been my experience that, you know, in cases where there is same-sex attraction that is experienced as soon as those spirits of the opposite sex are able to be successfully cast out, that natural affection returns and the person is restored to themselves. Um, but, you know, they have to want to be released from the bondage in which they find themselves. They have to recognize that they are actually in bondage, that this is not them, that, you know, they are, um, not only being taken advantage of, but they're being sexually assaulted. And there needs to be an indignance, um, you know, in them. And they have to be willing to give up whatever gifts this unclean spirit is giving them. Um, so it's a misnomer that uh, these unclean spirits only take they often give gifts uh, to those that they are influencing. However, they always take more than they receive. And liberation is always possible. Um, but, you know, in these cases, there's usually a pile-on of uninvited spirits. And it usually helps to clear away or clear out the pile-on or pile on of uninvited spirits um, before the person can find enough inner strength to be willing to do what is required of them to have the unclean spirit who is co-inhabiting with them cast out that they might be restored to themselves and unto a greater portion of the light of Christ, which portion that they're able to receive is being eclipsed because of these unclean spirits who are actually uh, working out their time in spirit prison. This is also a state of captivity by the devil, 
which the adversary is able to exercise over not only those who are disembodied, but to those who are embodied, who either are under assault by unclean spirits or by demons and devils. Verse 15. Now there are some that have understood that this state of happiness and the state of misery of the soul before the resurrection was a first resurrection. Yea, I admit it may be termed a resurrection. The raising of the spirit or the soul and their consignation to happiness or misery according to the words which have been spoken. And so, uh, again, the idea that this term resurrection can be used as a broad term and that it encompasses uh, a host of different specifics depending on the individual and the time of that individual. Verse 16, and behold it again, and behold, again, it hath been spoken that there is a first resurrection, a resurrection of all those who have been or who are or who shall be down to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So now this is different than the first resurrection that is talked about in DNC 76, which is, you know, to come forth with Christ um, as he comes in his glory. And again, verse 16, and behold, again, it hath been spoken that there is a first resurrection, a resurrection of all those who have been or who are or who shall be down to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So Christ will be the first fruits of resurrection. And then at some point, all those who have died at one point or another will come forth in the resurrection or they will be born again of woman. Verse 17. Now, we do not suppose that this first resurrection, which is spoken of in this manner, can be the resurrection of the souls and their consignation to happiness or misery. Ye cannot suppose that this is what it meaneth. Behold, I say unto you, nay, but it meaneth the returning of the soul with the body of those from the days of Adam down to the resurrection of Christ. Now, whether the souls and the bodies of those of whom have been spoken shall be reunited at once. The wicked as well as the righteous, I do not say. Let it suffice that I say that they all come forth, or in other words, the resurrection cometh to pass before the resurrection of those who die after the resurrection of Christ. Or in other words, um, you know, starting with the resurrection of Christ, um, this process of being born again would immediately start. Now, remember the term resurrection can also mean being restored to uh, a translated body. And we do have this account in the New Testament that after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there were many who were seen to come out of their graves. Uh, they having ascended to the level that they qualified for this type of resurrection, which is um, a resurrection of the spirit being reunited to a translated terrestrial body. But it's important to understand that this is only a temporary period. And that at some point, that individual will have finished 
the learning and ministry experiences that they have during that translated terrestrial state and will be born again of woman so that they can continue the path of ascension because of the two legs that we must fill on our path to become as Christ is. You know, one of those legs is to overcome our character flaws. And we do that when we have the veil of forgetfulness drawn across our minds and we're in uh, a telestial plane of existence, um, at least for the most part. The other leg is knowledge. And with that goes wisdom. And that leg is uh, most greatly filled up as we transition into that translated state. And um, our ability, when we go into that translated state, to work out character flaws is severely throttled. And, but on the path of ascension, we will go back before, back and forth between the two states, and we will eventually fill up both legs, both of working out of character flaws and of obtaining knowledge and its application, which is wisdom. And then we ultimately, you know, become as Christ and as Mary um, are and as they were. Verse 19. Now, whether the souls and the bodies of those of whom has been spoken shall all be reunited at once, the wicked as well as the righteous, I do not say. Let it suffice that I say that they shall all come forth. Or in other words, the resurrection cometh to pass before the resurrection of those who die after the resurrection of Christ. So, you know, those who died before Christ's resurrection uh, are either born again or um, are changed to a resurrected translated state before that process of re resurrection um, starts of being born again for those who do so after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, my son, I do not say that the resurrection cometh at the resurrection of Christ, but behold, I give it as my opinion that the souls and bodies are reunited of the righteous at the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven. But whether it be at the resurrection or after, I do not say. But this much I say, that there is a space between death and the resurrection of the body, and a state of the soul in happiness, or in misery, until the time which is appointed of God, that the dead shall come forth and be reunited, both soul and body, and be brought to stand before God, and to be judged according to their works. And this bringeth about the restoration of of those things of which has been spoken by the mouths of the prophets. And the soul shall be restored to the body, and the body to the soul. Yea, and every limb and joint shall be restored to its body. Yea, even a hair of the head shall not be lost. But all things shall be restored to their proper and perfect frame. And now, my son, this is the restoration of which has been spoken by the mouth of the prophets. And then shall the righteous shine forth in the kingdom of God. But behold, an awful death cometh upon the wicked. For they die as to things pertaining to things of righteousness, for they are unclean, and no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of God. But they are cast out and consigned to partake of the fruits of their labors, or their works, which have been evil, 
and they drink the dregs of a bitter cup. And with that, we will come back next Monday and continue Alma's discourse on resurrection um, and repentance and the path of ascension as we go for as we go through uh, chapters 41 and 42.